Well, listeners, on this episode of Book Fair, we have yet another Book Fair first for you. Now, usually when we talk about firsts, we're excited about the first. This particular first we're not super excited about. Our dear, lovely Elizabeth cannot be with us today. So sad. Yeah, sad. So we are not happy about it. We are super excited that we have a guest with us today. And we have had to reschedule a couple times between sickness and schedules to make this work. And this is the only time we could do it before Thanksgiving. So we are grateful for that. But we are missing our Elizabeth. And we are just asking all of you who are rabid Elizabeth fans, don't turn off the episode. <laughs> we will do our best to carry on without her, even though it will not be the same. Yes, that is true. I will try and pull out a little more Southern accent at times. Oh, can you do that for us? <laughs> well, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Christiana, Elizabeth's from Louisiana originally. I'm from Georgia, but her accent is beautiful and she's kept more, been able to keep more of it. <laughs> well, I definitely cannot help in that department at all. <laughs> I don't think you yeah. can get more Northern than me. So. <laughs> Welcome to Book Fair, a feast for every season of reading. We are a growing community of curious readers who share the excitement of books. We want to read together and feast together through the seasons of the year and the seasons of our lives, and we hope you join us. So, listeners, we are so excited today to introduce to you Christiana Hale, the author of Deeper Heaven, and we gave you a little preview about her. Amanda has talked about her um, and quoted her in our Facebook group, and then we gave you a preview that she was going to be coming on, so we are super excited that this worked out. Christiana spends her days teaching Latin and English to almost 100 energetic junior high and high school students at Logo School in Moscow, in Idaho. Moscow, Idaho, a classical Christian school seeking to train students with the kind of education that produced such minds as Lewis and Tolkien. When not teaching or writing works of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, Christiana spends time with her parents and siblings and enjoys the rolling hills of the, oh, I don't know this word. Christiana, help me out. Palouse. Palouse. Enjoys the rolling hills of the Palouse and the deep woods of North Idaho. Sometimes she even goes stargazing. Deeper Heaven is her first published book. So welcome, Christiana. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to get to talk to you about Lewis. We are too. We had, and if you're just listening to this episode, and it's one of the first you've heard of ours, we had an episode, a book club episode, where we read Out of the Silent Planet, and the episode is our discussion on that. And this was my second reading of the book, and I have had this kind of very personal connection with it. I have, I've talked about this a little on the podcast. I'm coming very gradually out of almost a decade of chronic illness with Lyme disease and other things. And this trilogy, funnily enough, is one of the first things that I remember reading coming out of that fog. A lot of audio, mm. all the Austin books and the Ransom trilogy. Those were like the main things, first things that I read. And I just, the atmosphere alone somehow was conveying I felt like a spiritual message in a way. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but I just felt such connection with it. And I didn't know why, but I loved it. And I'd always heard about that hideous strength, the third book in the trilogy, being one of the books one should read if you are pursuing the Western canon. And so on the second reading, I started to research more about the book and learning about medieval cosmology. And I had never heard of that. And you can go back and listen to a little bit that I shared from notes that I took watching Douglas Wilson, who is from your neck of the woods, <laughs> right? And your school. Uh, and it blew my mind. I had no idea about this. And it was shifting my perspective of the whole trilogy. And we had such great feedback and curiosity about that. 
we had listeners who read it didn't get it but are like this is lewis so there's something here you know this is there's something here i'm not seeing we had readers who maybe this was their second or third time reading it and were very encouraging to others to finish it and i would just like to for everyone, kind of start out digging into the medieval cosmology. We had such great feedback about that. People are so excited for this episode, and I think that's a big reason why. So I guess my first question is, what is medieval cosmology, and what is Lewis doing with it here? That's a great question, and I think that is the question that I think is really foundational to understanding, or at least starting towards understanding what Lewis was trying to do in the Ransom Trilogy, in the Space Trilogy. And it was very, because it was very clearly part of his purposes in writing it, was to shift the reader's perspective on, well, really the entire world, but the cosmos in particular, and to return to an earlier idea, an earlier concept not necessarily to reject all of the advances that we've had in in the scientific realm, but to recapture something that was more essential, which is the imaginative and spiritual realities behind behind the cosmos. And so I think understanding the the medieval cosmology is really important to making, making progress in that way. There are really two, I think, separate elements to the medieval cosmology. One would be the actual physical arrangement of the cosmos, which then leads to certain imaginative elements coming coming to bear. But then there is that other, the other half of it, which is the spiritual and imaginative side. And what's really fascinating to me in the Ransom Trilogy is that Lewis doesn't actually argue for the physical arrangement of the medieval cosmos. So there's this really interesting scene in Out of the Silent Planet when Ransom sees one of the, uh, I guess you could say aliens, right? Uh, He's one of the creatures is working on a sculpture of kind of a map of the cosmos. And on that map, it is actually follows the solar system that we that we use. So it puts the sun at the center and it shows it, it's just a map of what you might see in a middle grade classroom, right? A solar system on the wall or something hanging from the ceiling. And so what he's doing, though, is he's borrowing a lot of these the elements from the medieval cosmology, the ones that he thought had particular imaginative potency and he's taking those and kind of bringing them into a more, you know, a Copernican, if you will, uh, solar system, right? And imposing them on top of it, which I think is really fascinating because he's doing something a little bit more than just saying, let's all pretend that the medieval cosmology is real and it's a complete fantasy. We all know that, but let's just pretend it's real. He's actually doing something, I think, much more important than that, which is saying, we all know through advances in science and astronomy, we know that this is the movement of the planets and that, you know, we have this certain arrangement, but there are certain elements of that medieval cosmology that are still true and that should still inform the way that we think about certain things, um, especially the way that we think about angels and creation and, you know, how the world actually functions and how the world actually works. So I think that, an introduction to medieval cosmology is really helpful as a starting place to talking about the Ransom Trilogy and seeing what Lewis is doing there. That's great. What What do you think are some of the most basic tenets or most important 101 tenets of medieval cosmology that are helpful for new new readers to the trilogy or just new to medieval cosmology? That's a good question. I think the most, if I had to say the most important thing would be the planetary figures and their importance in in the cosmology. So obviously the, the medievals had a different idea of how the planets were arranged. So the order of the planets, but so the, so the two things would be planetary personalities that each of the planets, um, not just, and when we say planet, we don't necessarily mean the physical, you know, actual sphere, right? That's, that's floating up there, but they saw the planets as being connected to a heavenly body or spiritual 
entity, right? So we might call them angels. Lewis kind of leans that direction and and connects them to angels um, that is associated with that planet and has all these these qualities, essential qualities that are associated with it as well. So that's really important because I think filling seeing the personality of creation is really important to Lewis. And it's really important in combating some of the ideologies that he was combating in the book and which we still are dealing with today. Things like materialistic reductionism and and things like that, where it's really important to recognize the personality of our creator, which means the creation itself then has that personality. So I think he loved how that was captured in the personalities of the planets themselves. And then beyond that, the actual arrangement, maybe not the order of the planets, but the concept of the Earth being lowest and central is really important as well. Because we, a lot of times, this is a misconception about the medieval cosmology that we think that they made the Earth the center because they considered it to be the most important and very, you know, we say this today, right, is that, oh, you think you're the center of the universe, meaning you think you're the most important, which is, a, but it's a very different, actually, a very different feeling for a medieval man, right? They did not see the center as being the most important spot, the spot of highest importance, but actually the lowest kind of think of, if you think of a cone, right, um, the, the whole the whole cosmos is more shaped like an upside down cone. And if you're the lowest point, I mean, you're, if you're the center point, you're the lowest, right? You're down and tucked deep in the bottom of that cone, which is not where you want to be. Um, and so, and same thing if you, I think a good example of this is thinking of Dante's Divine Comedy, which is a result of that medieval Renaissance period and has much of the same ideas in it. If you think of his Inferno and you think, okay, well, what is at the center of hell in Inferno? And it's Satan himself, right? Satan's very, very tucked down way at the very bottom, the center. And so that kind of, he's the farthest from the realm where God dwells. He's the farthest from the abode of God. And so as we move out, you're actually getting closer to the dwelling place of God. You're getting closer to where things are more in harmony with the way God intended things to be. And so in that sense, Lewis actually saw the medieval the problem with the medieval worldview, the medieval cosmology is not that man is central. Uh, it's actually how do we reconcile the unimportance of man at the center of the universe being basically down in the sump pump of the universe or the, the dregs of humanity, right? He's like, how do we reconcile that with the gospel and with man's salvation and with Christ's incarnation? And how do we, that's actually where the tension is. Not, it's not that they thought man was so important. It's that they thought man was so lowly and unimportant that how, how could it even be possible that God would condescend to become one of us? Cause that's such a drastic, uh, drastic leap. So that those two things in concert, I think the, the arrangement of the universe with man at the bottom, lowliest and, and center central, but lowliest. And then the personalities of the individual planets themselves, I think are the two key elements that Lewis uses in the ransom trilogy and that are important to starting to understand what he was after. So I have a question about this planet personality thing. So when I was reading, when Amanda was even talking about reading Outside of Planet for the first time, and I think the message of space being filled with the glory of God, that is so clear. Like I even just remember reading it the first time and the way Ransom describes feeling when he's in the spaceship and the beauty of it, that just struck me so forcibly. And then when I started to understand a little bit about this medieval cosmology that was that was super clear to me and I'm going to say in a way more obvious and more in line with the Christian perspective I already had right so I already have verses like the heavens declare the glory of God in my mind and so to say oh he is painting us a picture of even if we go out there we're going to find the glory of God the glory of God is everywhere in his beautiful created universe so that makes sense in the current Christian perspective I have. When I started reading your book and 
started reading about the planetary personalities. Of course, I've, I knew that Mercury and Venus and Mars are also the names of gods and goddesses. So I knew they were named that way from a time when people believed in these gods and goddesses. But when I started reading the book and talking about or thinking about the way Lewis valued these planetary personalities based on these ancient personalities and concepts of these gods and goddesses, my first thought was, well, how is that a Christian perspective? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I think, well, it's it's so fascinating because it really is tied up with the medieval concept of those gods and goddesses, right? How how were those connected to the planets? And were they separate? Were they the same? Were they different? And Lewis uh, actually refers to this in the discarded image. He says, basically, to ask a medieval man, well, when they say Jupiter, or they say something about Jove or Venus, if you were to ask them, well, are you talking about the god or goddess or the planet or the personality, they wouldn't even understand what you were asking them. To separate those things out and tease them out is just was not a thing that they really did. And what's really fascinating too is that even in you know Christian, the Christian mind at the time, they didn't have a problem referring to Jupiter or Venus or Mercury and thinking of the the ancient pagan gods and goddesses necessarily, uh, because in their minds, those were actual beings that did exist. They were, they were demons, if you will, or devils that had a certain amount of power prior to Christ's coming. And then after Christ came, he basically bound the strong man, right? And plundered his house. And so though those, those powers no longer have the sway over men that they used to. And basically it's just completely, you know, that power has been broken. Um, so there's that, that element, which is kind of interesting to think about. And then, then you have this kind of just odd, I think the way men's minds works, the way men, human beings work, we really are fascinated. Like, why do kids like to read about Greek mythology and Roman mythology? Like, even when we know that it's, you know, that these aren't really gods and goddesses in the sense that they don't have that power, but those stories are just fascinating, right? And I think there's some fascination too with the different things that are associated with these personalities. So if we took Apollo and we look at um, just the god Apollo and what is he the god of and all the things associated with him, and then you think, oh, and that makes sense that he's connected to the sun because there's just these inherent qualities that make sense to be connected to those to those things. And somehow we just like that, right? It's just fascinating. It's just really interesting to us. And the medievals were no less fascinated by it, right? It gave them, and it really does, I argue in, in my book too, that one thing it does is it takes different attributes, I would argue, of God and just kind of lumps them together and puts them under a microscope. Cause we are so we're, we're fallible. We'll limit, we're limited. We're finite in our ability to comprehend God and in, in all of his in all of his personality and all of his different attributes. I mean, he created everything, and we can't even really enjoy one thing in front of us to the fullest extent that we could. So how how could we enjoy everything that God is and everything that he enjoys? And so I think it is really interesting to see how each of the planetary personalities kind of takes certain attributes or qualities that really we could say is found in God and is found ultimately in his personality and how we can enjoy, enjoy that by looking at it more closely. No, that makes sense. And I, I hadn't thought of it exactly that way, that in a way, the way Lewis portrays the planets in each planet, essentially having kind of an archangel over ruling, guiding that planet and that archangel's personality, attributes, character traits, they could be looked at as all the different sides of the character of God. Yes, and different facets of that. And it was really interesting, too, is, you know, when Lewis describes in that hideous strength, the descent, I think the chapter is called The Descent of the Gods, and it's when the different planetary beings or angels, you could say, come down to earth and they are giving certain power to Merlin, right? They're preparing him to be be the vessel that ultimately defeats the enemy. And that's just one of the most fantastic chapters, really. His descriptions are so 
so perfect. And when you realize, especially his description of Jupiter, Jove, is just all out kingly majesty, right? It's just beyond what we could comprehend. And you realize he's still describing a creature, right? This, this angelic being is still only a creature. And that if even that creaturely being has this sort of majesty and weight and heart that hardly bears describing, it gives us sort of a sense, a glimpse of what he considers to be God's kingly majesty is how much higher would it, would God be above this earthly, this creature, than this creature is above us, right? Um, in that sense, and how Ransom has to warn Merlin and, and the other people in the house to not be tempted to worship these beings, right? Because they are just beings. Uh, they are created just like we are, uh, but their majesty is such that it, it does display to us or give us a glimpse of this sort of majesty that God has. So in our conversation already, the word imagination has come up a few times, and you have a whole chapter in Out of the Silent Planet section of your book about it. And I've highlighted almost the whole chapter, which is not helpful study habit (laughs) to highlight a whole chapter. Uh, (laughs) But I think that it really hit me. And you make the connection that Part of what Lewis is doing in Out of the Silent Planet is reforming Ransom's imagination from a completely modern, a modernist, a modern person to include or tweak it to include these good parts of the medieval mindset. And it's almost like we as the reader, when we are reading this, are like Ransom being reformed in our imagination. And that's a big thing that Lewis is wanting to do. And you talk about that in the book, which was fantastic. And you do this in the chapter, but can you talk for just a minute about the role of imagination? You connect it to story. The stories inform our imagination and our imagination informs our beliefs, our choices that we make. Can you talk about that chain of command, if you will, and how that works? Yes. Well, I, I think first off, it is really important to recognize that it's not a question of whether we will be shaped by a story. It's which story we will be shaped by because we are, that's how we've been created. We've been created as uh, characters in a story. We exist in a story and we see things in narrative all the time. It doesn't, doesn't take you very long with a toddler to realize, you know, what they, that they are built for stories, right? They love little children, love stories right away. You don't have to teach them really to like uh, listening to an exciting story. So we, we are shaped by stories all the time. And another word I think for worldview is just story, right? Narrative. What is your narrative that you are going to believe to put your faith in, in terms of why we are here, where we came from, where we're going, what is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of the world, the universe? That's all fits into a story. And so, and everyone has one. We all have a story for why we are here and and what our purpose is. And so when it comes to stories that we tell to our children or that we read ourselves or that now in the movie age of movies, you know, that we watch, because those are also stories. The question is, you know, how, where are we going to put our time into and what are we going to let shape us? Because we will be shaped by them wherever we get them. And, And nowadays it's hard to escape getting story from somewhere, right? And so what are we going to let have an impact on us and let mold us? And I think, you know, the the right kinds of stories is really important um, to what kind of people we are becoming because it shapes how we see the world around us too. We are training, like I I think I say in the book, training our imaginations uh, to think of the world in a certain way. And so you know, the, the story, the myth, if you will, of evolution, right, that trains your mind to think of the world a certain way. If you look out at a vast crowd of people and all you see is a bunch of sacks of chemicals that have certain chemical reactions that cause them to feel a certain way, how is that going to change how you treat people and how you think of them and think of their value? Because if, if all we are is physical atoms bouncing around and we don't have any purpose beyond that, or any where we're going after we die, and there's no uh, 
no author of this story, right? It's just all an accident. That changes the way you think about people and morality and the world around you, the physical world around you, joy, sorrow, pleasure, right? It changes the way you view all of those things. And so if we, I think it's really important, obviously, that we view the world according to what God has told us about it. You know, he, if he has created it, not only does that mean that he is the author and has authority over us, but also that everything inherently has a certain value, both, you know, the people around us that are created in his, his image and also the physical world, right? He, he clearly likes it because he made it, right? Obviously it's fallen and distorted right after the effects of sin, but that there is a goodness that inherent in the physical realm in his, in his creation and animals and all the vast array of plants and just this amazing world that he's given us that we can enjoy and should enjoy uh, because he enjoys it and clearly likes it. And so seeing everything as crafted by, by him, which I think is a thing, a strength that the medieval cosmology has, uh, that they very clearly saw the entire cosmos as an intricately designed, put together artifact, right? That this is an, a thing made by God is a strength that that has. And that I think it opens our eyes to the fact that that is, that is true. We know that to be true, but even Christians have been very influenced by our culture and by Hollywood and social media. Right. And it's easy to lose that sense when we're constantly bombarded with the idea with the story narrative that actually everything's just an accident and there's no design or no craft involved in, in these things. And so I think that that is a way that a story like Lewis's, like the Ransom Trilogy, can really wake us up to the wonder and the glory that is to be found in the created world. And I always am very interested in the question, well, what does this mean to me? And as you were just talking about that, I mean, there is such a difference in the way we hold our place in the world based on even how we see the the universe, the galaxy. And like you said, even as someone who from my cradle was taught that God created the world, when, like you said, everything I ever saw in school or every scientific image of space, or I can even hear a narrator in my head saying 15 million billion years ago and the explosion, you know, you you're influenced by that picture of... This is a vast chemical experiment, and we just happen to be one of trillions of planets that happen to evolve life. And even in this moment, as I say that out loud, in my heart, that makes me feel like the cosmos is impersonal, that it's cold and vast and uninviting, and that maybe I'm not very safe here. And... That in contrast to seeing it as a, as you said, a beautifully constructed artifact that the glory of God is everywhere. And he put me in this very specific spot in and as a part of his very beautiful, purposeful creation. And whether I am praying and meditating in the woods or I'm looking up at the stars, there is all purpose and love and grace. And that's that's very that's very different. And that's a very different story to live in. Yes, it it's and it's very it is comforting and ultimately I think too realizing that it comes down to faith in in every story, right? So even the the one who believes the evolutionary myth, they're taking so much on faith too. Right? It's it's they weren't, they are taking the 17 billion years ago on faith, right? Um, and the, at, at the end, it is a matter of of belief and faith and whose word you're going to be putting that faith into. Are we going to put it into the word of man or into the word of God revealed to us in scripture? And I think, like you said, too, the the comfort the, that that offers, too, is, is huge, um, this comes back to the imagination also, right? Is that when we think of, I, I used to hate 
space movies when I was little, which is kind of ironic now, but I, I did <laughs> yeah. not like any movie where they were going in a space shuttle out into space. And cause something always went wrong in those movies for one thing. And I, I really <laughs> disliked, <laughs> I really disliked the idea of floating out in the, just nothing. Like there's nothing out there. It's terrifying. It, it is terrifying. Yeah. And and it in again the way that they're presented too like what's the perspective presented in a lot of the hollywood movies is that this is just we're in the kind of debris field of the great explosion and there's no craft or order or anything between in the space between worlds right it's like we have our our little islands that we're hopping to and from uh, we even say you know in i think it's various sci-fi movies they even call them starships right is that we're we're on ships in a vast uncontrolled unformed sea and we're just jumping from world to world and it's all dead in between dead and just there's nothing you know god is not here it's like there's this void um there and so i think even though you know there is a certain extent to which certain things are true scientifically knowing that no god is no less god in that space between than he is here it is no less created no less formed than than our earth is there is a again a a a sense of rest that you have in that that we're resting in god's work resting in his creation and it's it reminds me of how the medievals would do illuminated manuscripts which are just glorious if you look at illuminated manuscripts and it's why why did they do that and and a lot of times the illumination and the art wouldn't have anything to do with the content of the work and there's various reasons um some some practical reasons right um that scholars would tell you it's to so that they would not lose track of where they were right or they could find things because they that's where i put the weird little gargoyle in the corner and so i can find this page or this or that. But ultimately too, it's just, they, that's what they believed about the world, that the world is full of, of life, right? There's no empty space that God, God made everything. And then he filled it to the brim with things, with created things, with life and with breath and with flowers and plants and animals and creatures that we can't even see and can't imagine. And it was this lively, vivacious sort of world. And so what else are they going to do but fill the margins of their page with these beautiful illuminated pictures? And so to think of almost God as, I I like the image of that he is painting his creation, right? He's painting us um, lovingly and carefully. Um, each stroke is chosen, right, for us, that we are his craftsmanship. I think there's a Lewis quote where he says that we are his craftsmanship, so quietly submit to be painted, right? Like we are, we are to, you know, let him do with us what he will. But there's, that's not terrifying. It's not terrifying because we know the art, the painter. We know the great painter. We have a personal relationship with him. And so it's not terrifying to let him let him paint us because we know who he is. And I, I just think that's a really great image of what Lewis is after with this trilogy is changing the way we view the world. Because it's very easy for us to say that we believe that God created the world, but then go out and act in the world as if he did not, or act in the world as if it's just all there by chance, like the movies are telling us, <laughs> right? Yes. And what one way my imagination is being reformed through these, through the trilogy and your book, is I saw, you know, all the, the James Weber telescope photographs, which are just beautiful and amazing. And this one in particular, I liked it so much, I put it on my phone. If you can see that a little bit. Don't worry, listeners, I'll post it. Okay, but you might have seen it already. But these are all different galaxies, so they think. But there's so much color and warmth from the picture. And I don't know, I feel like life, I'm not saying that these planets are populated with things, but it is creation. It is intentionally there. And it is part of order and pattern. And so I guess I say life in that way, at least. But I just, I'm looking at these pictures differently now. Yeah. So this is, um, Christiane, I'm going to quote you back to you for our listeners so they can hear some, I want them to hear some gems from your book. So um, you say in chapter eight, what do we see and think and feel when we look up at the night sky? 
Does it inspire awe and wonder and joy or fear and abhorrence, a sense of belonging or a sense of meaninglessness? If we see the cosmos as we ought, then we will see a place teeming with life and light and love, all things moving because of the love of the great mover. All things are joined together in the great dance, praising their creator and serving him by doing what they were created to do. Love it. Love it. It's glorious. Yeah, you're writing and what we're writing about what you're writing about glorious. Yeah. And I, you know, I think this is probably I know for you as a C.S. Lewis fan and scholar, this is probably the biggest compliment I can give your book is that reading your book magnified and personalized what I was already getting out of Lewis's work. Mm -hmm. So I was able to understand it more, see it more clearly, and therefore take it in and see the beauty and the majesty. And of course, what Lewis is trying to do is reflect the image of God, right? So he is trying to, which is that is something that he does as well as anyone. I, For me personally, I don't know anyone that does it better. Um, and so to read this trilogy, then with your book in hand, it just became a brighter beacon of light for me. So thank you. Thank you for writing it. You're welcome. That And that's, I mean, it's so good to hear the highest compliment, really. And because that is what I wanted it to be. So to hear that I accomplished what I set out to accomplish is really, <laughs> really amazing because that I, it is what I wanted to do, which is guide people to seeing how amazing these books are. So to to shine a light on those and to hopefully yeah, give give them the tools that they need to realize how how amazing these books really are and the depths that are there. And because I, I was kind of writing in a sense to a younger me when I first when I first encountered them, I didn't entirely understand understand them. I struggled, struggled with some of them. And so but then I then I fell in love with them once I had a few handles and I started studying them a little bit more in depth and uh, doing doing a little more research. And so again, it was it was the intent was to give people a deeper appreciation for them. And then hopefully, again, this is not a comprehensive guide by any means. So there's a lot more. I still, whenever I I try to reread them at least once a year, still to to, to keep uh, keep finding more. And I, every time I'll find more and I'll be like, oh no, we have to do another edition of the book because I have more to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we're going to stop. Let other people discover and keep going. And, you know, I'll probably write more essays and things someday, but you know, th- this is, this is a starting point. It's hopefully a, a launching pad for other writers in the future, especially young younger writers, hopefully, who will read these and just find even more things to say about them and, and keep going further because there is there's always more. It's really um, is illuminating for me how deep this well is in just this little book out of the silent planet and on into the rest of the trilogy. You know, you know, it's there, you know, like you're reaching for it. You're not quite understanding, but it's there. And this is really answering a lot of questions and even taking me deeper than I even thought. Yeah. I, I've <laughs> used the analogy before of when I first read some book, I think it was specifically uh, Till We Have Faces, which is another book that uh, I'm actually starting to chip away at a reader guide for that book because Ooh, it's the other one. That, I love that yeah, book so much. I, <laughs> I, I don't know why I love book. it. Can I do <laughs> exactly, exactly? So that's the other book that when I first read it, I think I read it in high school, and I remember loving it. But I remember feeling like the analogy I use is someone standing at the mouth of a huge cavern. And it's so dark. It's pitch dark inside. And I have a tiny little match and I can hear my voice echoing. So like, I know it's huge and important, but I have a tiny little match. Like I can't see. And so I feel that way with the Ransom Trilogy too. And and that, okay, now with this book, I have more like a flashlight, flashlight, maybe, maybe two flashlights, <laughs> but there's still, there's still a vast cavern back there. So it really does reward rereading. I mean, Lewis's books reward mm. rereading and all of his books do that, I think, which is a sign of 
sign of a really great book, right? A sign of an enduring book is that you can reread it and reread it and you still come away being edified and feeling like you've discovered new things each time. So, so I think, yeah, I think there's definitely still, still more to be discovered there. So what would you say to someone who's asking the question or who's, what would you say to someone who is thinking, if I have to read another whole book to understand a book, it's too much for me. That's, that is a good question. So I would say first, I don't think you necessarily need to read my book to understand the Ransom Trilogy at all. I think there is a certain level at which you could just read the trilogy and you would you would get a lot of it. You would come away with a lot. I think that there are things that are very unique about the Ransom Trilogy that may confuse <laughs> confuse people and stump people there there are it is its own thing right it really is its own genre it doesn't quite fit into a sci-fi straight sci-fi genre or fantasy it's kind of some weird melding in between thing so i think that you can get a lot from it just on its own and i know a lot of people i mean so many people have read the trilogy since it was published before anyone published any other book explaining what Lewis was doing, it was a favorite. It was, it was well-known. So I don't think, I think that you can still do that. I don't think you have to read my book in order to understand it, but I wrote the book for those people that either got caught on something, right? They couldn't make it through because they stumbled over something or they did read it, but they don't understand why people like it. Cause there are those people that will read through it and there's like, I don't get why this is such a favorite and, or, or just read it and they do like it fine, but there's a lot that they've missed or that they don't quite understand what Lewis was trying to accomplish with it. So I think, I think the sign of a great book is that people can write other books about it and untangling and, <laughs> and delving deep into the riches, right? If we think of, I mean, you think of the great books of the Western canon and how many, you know, how many people have written books about Augustine's City of God or have written books about Shakespeare or about all these great you know, authors. It's like just because someone writes books about it, pulling things out and drawing things out doesn't mean that that book is not worth reading itself. I think that's actually the opposite argument. It's like, well, people have clearly spent time and resources and energy writing about these great authors and these great books. So there must be something deeply valuable about them. So go read it, <laughs> go read it. And, <laughs> and if you love reading, I mean, we always have more books to read, so we shouldn't complain about more books to read. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> so this is another thing that I, that I heard from some of our listeners. And I want to preface this with saying, if you started this book, out of the silent planet and you just did not like it and it's not for you right now that is a hundred percent okay we always say yes. we do not do any reading shame we are not about that <laughs> so if this was just not for you and you're like that's not my book totally fine no worries that happened see that happened to me that happened to me and I went on to write a book about it so if you stop <laughs> a few chapters in and then go back in five or six years, you may end up writing a book about it. So be careful. <laughs> <laughs> so Stacy Butler, I look forward to your future book you're going to write on this. <laughs> so if you started it and you kind of thought it was weird and you didn't really like it, but now you're listening to this episode, you've listened to us talk about it and you're thinking okay, maybe, maybe I will dip my toe back in. What is your best advice about how to do that? Ooh, that's, that is a good question. I would say that there's a couple strategies you could take, right? You could just, depending on how long it's been, maybe since you tried reading it, maybe just try jumping in again, see, see what happens, see if you can get, get past that block that block, right? Um, I remember I I tried reading it when it was fair. I was fairly young. I was maybe sixteen or seventeen, and I didn't get more than a few chapters in, and then gave up and didn't read it until I was in college. And I was forced to read it for a class, so had to read it and just fell in love with it. So you know, you could. And at that point, I had didn't have a reader guide or anything that I was using. I was in a class, so I did have a professor that that really loved it and gave some gave some handles to hold on to and that made me more excited to, to dive into it. 
So, you know, listen to maybe listen to some lectures online. There are lectures available. I think, um, Amanda, you mentioned the Doug Wilson lectures, you know, listen to something, listen to someone talk about it that really loves it. And maybe that'll help you get excited. Uh, Another option, I have talked to people who have used my book kind of alongside reading through the trilogy. So do something like read the introductory chapters and then kind of go back and forth between reading the trilogy and reading the appropriate chapters that line up with the book, that that can work. But um, yeah, just I think it would depend on on the reader and the situation. So maybe just try it again, see see what happens. Or if you're just really determined, you know, get get some help and and read books that will help you understand it or listen to teachers that will help get you excited about it as well. I know we have a lot of listeners who are huge Narnia fans and some who, you know, love, love, love Narnia and had a hard time with this. Um, How can understanding this medieval cosmology also help us with some of his other work like Narnia? Yeah. Well, uh, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but there is this excellent book by Dr. Michael Ward, who's a great um, C.S. Lewis scholar, one of the best. Um, he wrote Planet Narnia, which is a really, really great book. It is it is um, on the hefty side. It's on the hefty side. There's a shorter version, actually, which is great, called The Narnia Code, which is, it's really short. It's like thin, nice, thin little book that basically, I mean, he, he really did do it as a layman's version of Planet Narnia, right? If you don't, don't have the time or uh, want to take the time and effort to put into Plant Narnia because Plant Narnia is a hefty read. Um, then there's there's that book, The Narnia Code, which is really excellent. And basically his his theory, and I think it's honestly could be said to be more than a theory at this point, he defends it admirably, is that Lewis wrote each of the seven Narnia books to line up with one of each of the seven planets from medieval cosmology and that each one is influenced by the character and personality of each planet that it matches up with. So, and that honestly, that was my entrance into being excited about the ransom trilogy. So, cause I actually read that book and he does talk about the, the ransom trilogy a bit in that And I was so fascinated by that idea of the seven heavens and the seven planets lining up with the Narnia trilogy. I just thought that was so interesting. And it really is a key that unlocks the mystery, I think, of why do these books work so well? And especially the books where there seems to be such weird things popping up, like Father Christmas in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And and Mrs. Beaver has a sewing machine. And you're just like, but why does this work? Like, this somehow somehow creates this world that it... (laughs) all works and we love it and we don't even and and i think it's because of that planetary influence and again dr ward does an excellent job of defending that idea and the more you think about it even the skeptics who don't think that that is could possibly be what lewis was doing the more you have that seed of an idea in your head and you read them you can't really escape it. It becomes, it's one of those things that becomes more and more obvious and the more threads you pull, the more that comes out. So I do think that this project, Lewis's project of recovering this image of the cosmos that is more medieval in its, in its mindset and honestly more biblical in a lot of ways. I think that was a project that he considered to be really an essential project for him and that it comes out in a lot of his writings in in both fiction and nonfiction, but especially his fiction writings, um, it comes out. And it makes sense because a lot of us forget that he was a medieval Renaissance scholar. That, That was his job. Yes, he was a popular apologist and yes, he became a popular children's fiction writer, but he was a scholar that was, and his area of expertise was medieval Renaissance literature. And I think, so understanding that part of his personality and that part of his talent, his ability, his genius is really important to unlocking a lot of the the depths to be found in his other, in his writing as well. Yeah. Well, I have so many more, but I know we need to wrap it up. <laughs> this has really been great. And I do feel like we could talk a lot longer. Like we, I, we haven't even started. <laughs> so this is really great. <laughs> um, and you, but you do talk about these in your book. Um, medieval cosmology is ro- woven all throughout. I love the way you structure it. Um, 
topics like memory and pleasure, the planet, more about the the planetary personalities. Is it sci-fi? We didn't even get to, yeah. to that today. And then she goes through all the books in the trilogy like this. And it's really what it's thoughtful. It's insightful. It's very well written. And therefore it's very helpful. <laughs> um, so I just can't recommend it enough. You could read it before you read one of the books, read that book section. You could read it alongside. That's what I'm doing right now through Paralandra. Um, or you could just read it after, like I've done with Out of the Silent Planet. So it, it's really helpful no matter what way you do it. And again, listeners, you guys have to read the chapter on reforming imagination because that's something we have touched on many times in, on this podcast. And it was just, it was thrilling. It's thrilling to read. Maybe don't read it with a highlighter in your hand. Or you might go look. (laughs) (laughs) So as we're wrapping up here, I want to ask you listeners in the Facebook group, I would love to know what you thought about this episode. What questions has this brought up? What additional questions? What did you hear that really clicked in place for you? And where are you in your reading of the Ransom Trilogy? I would love to know. And Trisha, we have a challenge right now. Yes. As we move toward wrapping up here, Christiana, we are doing this really fun thing. We put out a challenge to our listeners to keep reading over the holidays. Um, We did an episode called Hustle Bustle Books, where we challenged our listeners to pick up, find, get at the library, a book they can carry with them during the holidays. So we are all making an effort in this crazy time to have some kind of small book, whether it's book of poetry or essays or short stories, something that is easy to dip in and out of, and to take a book and carry it with us during the Christmas season. And if you do that and take a picture of yourself reading a or on a Kindle, it can be anything you're reading, like reading words, not at your house. So take a picture of yourself reading a book, not at your house, hashtag it, hashtag hustle bustle books, and you will be entered in a drawing to win a personalized choice of a hustle bustle book that the three of us Um, on the podcast will pick out for you and mail to you after the first of the year. So get a hustle bustle book in your purse, in your car from Thanksgiving day until New Year's day. Take a picture of it out in the wild and tag us on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. Great. And you guys are killing it with your hustle bustle game. So keep it up. Thank you for joining us today, even minus Elizabeth. And until next time, I'm Trisha. I'm Amanda. And we will see you again and happy reading. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, subscribe to Book Fair Podcast. Interact with us on our Facebook page, Instagram, and TikTok. Join our private Facebook group for community and conversation and more book recommendations than you can handle. And you can help us grow by sharing, so don't forget to tell a friend.